0: Good morning, Cedar Creek. Thank you so much. I uh, I thought that I was excited uh, and fired up to preach this morning, and then I'm going to be completely honest with you—confession time from the pastor. Sometimes I probably don't pay as good of attention in meetings as I should. Uh, and I actually forgot before the first service that we were gonna do that hymn and that reading of scripture. And so both services, I have come out here like prepared to do 137 pushups and then sprint around that level of excited uh, for what God is up to this morning. So I hope that you feel that. Uh, if you have no idea who I am, uh, my name is Rick, and I'm the Adult Ministry Director here at our Banks Mill campus. Uh, and this morning, I have the opportunity to do something that will look a little bit different. If you're new with us this morning, what would normally happen during this time is our senior Pastor Philip, who came out and welcomed you guys just a little bit ago, would be teaching through a series. And the way that we teach here is we kind of separate the calendar and divide it up, we may pick topics in scripture, ideas that we want to look at that are applications from life, or sections of scripture, just different ways at different times, to try to bring the word to you in a way that connects with you, where you're at, and what you're walking through. And so if you've been here for the past several weeks, we've been in a series called Faith in Politics, and so we just wrapped that up, and I would encourage you to go back and look at that. But this week, uh, I actually had the opportunity, Danny is out of town, our campus pastor, and asked me to fill in. And so I had the opportunity to do what we call a standalone. And here's how standalones happen. We sit down in our meeting on Tuesdays that I just confessed to not paying attention in as well as I should. Uh, And we sit down and we go, hey, this is a standalone, which means there's two options. You can continue the series and wrap it up, do one extra week on the end of the series, Or you can teach whatever you want. As long as it's biblical, obviously, and those kind of things. And so my options, I'll maybe give it to you in a different way. My options were to continue to discuss faith and politics or to teach on whatever I want. So I took hard pass, please on faith and politics and decided uh, I will go my own way. But I do, I wanna just reiterate again, if you haven't been here for the past four weeks or you're brand new with us checking this out, I really wanna encourage you, get on the podcast, get on the website, get on the app, go online and watch the last couple of weeks. You will be better as a result of tuning into those. And I think it will teach you how to engage with the world that we live in better and in a more biblical manner. And so I'd really encourage you to do that. I just didn't want to, Okay. So full discretion, I'm laying it all out here with you. I'm going to be honest with you this morning. And the second reason that I didn't want to is because I recognize, maybe you could argue, some of you might would argue, although I would argue against this, that there's a flaw in my life in the way that I argue, okay? Now, I am in an argument, a combination between the greatest antagonist in your life and a five-year-old. And here's what I mean by that. On top of that, I'm also, and this is without question, the most competitive human being that you know, okay? I do not lose, I do not like to lose. So we can get into an argument. And I will contend I'm actually worse to be in an argument with if I don't care about the topic that we're arguing about. Because here's what my strategy becomes oftentimes in in an argument as a type A kind of logical thinker. I don't necessarily need to be right. I just need to poke holes in your reasoning. All right? And so here's what happens if I don't care. I will poke holes in both sides of the argument and then just walk away because I'm competitive. So, all right, if I don't care, I don't have to win. But my competitive spirit says, you can't win either. And so I'll just try to dissect both sides of the argument and leave you more confused than you were when we started that. And all of those characteristics of me is why, combined with wisdom and people, I just felt it was a good idea for me to stay away from politics. So we're not going there so everybody can breathe, you can relax. That's not where we're headed. But I thought about the series that we're coming out of as we looked at faith and politics, and then I thought about where we're heading. And so we just wrapped that up examining what is our Christian call when it comes to politics? What should we argue about or not argue about? What platforms should we stand on? What does it look like to stand on those platforms? How do we exist as Christians, as believers in, a, in a America where there's freedom, but we should use our freedom for wisdom to further the gospel? What does that look like and how do we balance those? And then starting next week, we're kicking off a brand new church-wide series where across all of our campuses, we're gonna unpack, No Greater Love, and the two big ideas of service and sacrifice. And what I realized unites those two series is that they're incredibly deep theological ideas that we're trying to boil down for you guys into a way that you can apply it on the ground in real life. So the idea that we live in this politically charged world, but the way that we view and discuss and argue, or again, not argue politics, is grounded in what we believe about Jesus and what we believe about scripture. And then as we look at no greater love and these two overarching ideas of service and sacrifice, we're going to look at the theology of humility. This theology that was modeled through Jesus and then how does that theology play into our lives and change the calling that exists in our lives? And so both of them have been take huge, massive, biblically important theological concepts and boil them down into a way that you can take them out of here on Sunday mornings and apply them to your lives. And so as I looked at those, I decided the way that I want to go this morning is to maybe plant a flag that will help to remind us of something right in the middle of those. And what I want to talk about this morning is the mission and vision of Cedar Creek Church and why we would take massive theological concepts and try to boil them down in such a way that you can apply them to your life. And so I want to look at the mission of Cedar Creek Church. And if you don't know this, it's not going to be on the screens, but if you're online with us, you can find it everywhere that we're online, on the app, on the website, anywhere that we post things, you can find our mission and vision. And the mission of Cedar Creek Church is helping people find their way back to God. That's why we do everything that we do. And I'll, and I'll pause right here because I just talked about online and forgot to mention this. If you're tracking along with us and you don't want to take physical notes, or you're one of those people like me that takes physical notes and then puts it on your dashboard. And then by Wednesday, the sun's bleached and it doesn't look like anything was ever printed on that paper. Uh, we do have online for you at notes.cedarcreekchurch.net. Uh, the ability for you to take notes there, but that page will look a little bit different this week because at not just this campus, but all of our campuses are doing standalone. So you can write the fill in the blanks. They'll be up on the screens like normal. Nobody panic. They're gonna be there, I promise. You can jot those down or you can write down whatever you want and then email it to yourself, take whatever steps you wanna take and that's notes.cedarcreekchurch.net but we run everything that we do as a church and as an organization through the mission of helping people find their way back to God. So here's the process and how that plays out on the ground for you. If you come to us as church staff with a really good idea, something that may be awesome and incredible and God's leading you to start, and you come and you go, hey, I want Cedar Creek Church to take part in this, the first lens that we're going to run that through is does your idea help us accomplish mission and vision? And if it does, we'll be willing to examine it and see if it's something that we could work into the calendar and our scope and sequence and how we process things here. And if it doesn't do that, it may be a really, really good idea, okay? It's not like we're attacking you personally or accusing you of coming up with something dumb. It's just not for us. It's just not what we are bought into because we are bought into anything that helps us help people find their way back to God or enable our people to help people find their way back to God. And that's the mission of Cedar Creek Church. And the cool thing about this being a standalone and me primarily, although I'm going out to the internet, so hey internet, is I have the opportunity to talk primarily to you here who hopefully belong or would call the Banks Mill campus your church family. And before we get to how I want to unpack the mission and vision and where those came from, I want to share some stuff with you that I think is really exciting and you may not know because you don't get to see all of these things and you don't get to calculate numbers, but it excites me because I'm one of those weirdos. And so here we are. In the last quarter of the year at Banksmill alone, we have seen over a 30% increase in adult and kids attendance on Sunday mornings and over 30% increase, all right? In Centerpoint Center Point has since COVID restructured the way that they engage with our middle school and high school students to be more intensive by connecting them in small group community to allow them to take next steps. And they have seen an increase in, of 18% in the number of students who are connected. This year alone, we have seen over 30 folks come to our Next Steps of membership class. We have seen 26 folks go public in their faith through baptism. We have had over 50 folks take their first visit to a home group a Cedar Creek Church home group. We have formed brand new home groups. In fact, we've had four home groups form in the last two months. We have multiplied existing groups. And then in the past month, we have actually begun as the Banks Mill campus to be the first Cedar Creek Church campus to translate our home group guides into Spanish to allow us to connect with people who don't speak English as their primary language, but belong to Cedar Creek Banks Mill home groups. So that's what God's been up to in the past quarter of the year. Yeah. Yeah. And we can celebrate that. And again, I, please don't misunderstand me. I'm not asking for applause for us or for Cedar Creek Church. But again, this is the mission. This is what we are after. This is why we are doing what we are doing. And so this morning, if you open your Bible to Matthew chapter 22, we're gonna unpack two passages of scripture that we really ground our mission and vision in. In Matthew 22, starting in verse 34, it says this. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, he talking about Jesus, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and prophets. I love this passage of scripture. And we could spend weeks unpacking it. And I understand there's a lot going on here if you don't understand or you don't have the entire biblical concept. Basically, the religious leaders of the Jewish church are trying, they're involved in an argument where they're really trying to elevate themselves above the people that they lead using the law and using their ability to keep the law to try to get the other people to see, hey, this is why we're better than you and you should be like us. And they're debating which law is most important. And so Jesus has kind of shut them down a couple of times and they're like, I love the fact they pick a lawyer, like, hey, get the smart guy and let him get Jesus. And so they, he asked this question, hey, Jesus, what's the most important rule? And we could spend weeks on the motivation and why this question's and why it's asked and what's going on here and the background in Jesus' life, and I want to do that. But here, here's what I really want to look at. If we can pull this out maybe of all of that sort of context and still be faithful to Scripture, I want us to see how unbelievably relatable this question is that this lawyer comes up with. If you don't know or never heard any of my story before I was in the role that I'm in right now, I did 10 years in student ministry, which means I worked with middle school and high school students. And the number one question in some form or facet that I got asked, not just in student ministry, but even now that I get to work with adults is something resembling, how do I know I'm a Christian or what does it mean to follow Jesus or how can I know I am saved? How can I figure out if I have this all together? And so I love this question and I love this answer that Jesus gives because it's what makes me tick. As excited as I am about those statistics, if you want to know what really gets me excited, it's revisiting those statistics three years from now and figuring out where those people are. How many of those 50 that connected in a home group or how much of that 30% increase in attendance on Sunday morning are taking a next step in serving on Sunday morning and getting connected in a home group and taking a next step in obedience to maybe become a leader of a home group or to get involved in our center point student ministry or to get involved in our kids' group. And that's what makes me tick. And so I love this powerful passage because they come and they try to trap Jesus and Jesus goes, no, 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 no. Here's the simplicity of it. Just love me and love people. One of the things I loved about student ministry as I was involved in it for 10 years is getting to see radical life transformation. You see, the cool thing about middle school and high school is they don't have the board, like the the boundaries, the little safety nets that we set up as adults. Like they're, they're they're not worried yet fully about what people around them think or like, hey, I accepted Jesus, but I'm not really willing for this to impact my life. Like I loved those camp moments. I loved those moments where kids get it and Jesus saves them and it clicks in their mind. And immediately it doesn't begin this, well, what's my next step? Well, we should go on Sunday mornings for twice a month. It's like, no, I need to go lay on the floor in front of Jesus and say, it's all yours. And I loved that aspect of student ministry. Now it presented some difficulties because there's some stuff that we had to wade through in that, but I loved that aspect of student ministry. And so as I was in, student ministry and got plugged in, what I believed is that Jesus, because I love those radical life-changing transformations, is like, hey, Jesus, I'm going to keep doing this. But I know that ultimately you're going to call me to like San Francisco. You're going to call me to Seattle or you're going to call me to somewhere in the world like Austin, Texas, where there's a huge population of lost people who are outwardly rebelling against you, who are in a war with you, who are just just burning it down and making a mess of life. And into that, you're going to call me and I'm going to get to plant a church and it's going to be awesome. And then God laughed at me and said, actually, after you're done with student ministry, I'm going to call you to the next thing right in the middle of the capital of the Bible belt where everybody believes in Jesus because they were born in Columbia. And so that's where I am, and that's where I've been walking at. And so as I was in that spot, in a couple of years after I began to feel that frustration and get into that, I was reading a passage of Scripture in Luke chapter 15, which is one of Jesus' most famous parables where he's talking about the story of the prodigal son. And if you, haven't, if you haven't heard it or read it or been around it for a while, i remind you what happens. There's a younger son who comes and says, hey, dad, I need all of my stuff. Basically, you're dead to me. I'm going to do my own life. I'm going to get it started. And he goes and he wastes it and he squanders it. He ends up in a pig pen, he comes back home, and the father meets him, comes running down the road, hugs him, gives him a ring, restores his status in the family, tells the servant to go get a fattened calf, we're going to throw a giant shindig party, because my son that was lost is home again, and we're going to party, and I loved that story. The issue that I have with the prodigal son is that the story doesn't stop there. The party doesn't get going. And then we're just like, man, God's so good. And we see this son who's been in rebellion be restored. And I love that part of the story because that was me. For much of my early life, I just outwardly rebelled at any way that I could against my parents, against the rules, against the church, against religion, against whatever somebody told me, hey, you have to do this. And I was the kid that was like, no, I'll do the other thing. No, you have to do this. No, but I'll do the other thing. And I did that, and so I related to that. But the incredible thing about the prodigal son and the burden that God has placed on my heart since that moment when I ran that six or seven years into my ministry career is what happens after the younger son is taken into the house. If you're not familiar with the story, there's an older brother who's the rule follower. Right? who grew up in the church, who did the right things, who knows all the answers, who has all the right steps, who's taken all the right steps, who dresses the right way, who behaves the right way. And he comes up from the pasture and he's not elated. right? Like He doesn't get up there and be like, all right, my brother's home. I love my brother so much. He's so incredible. This is awesome. He gets to his dad and he's livid. He's like, dad, I've been here. I'm working, I'm doing what you asked me to do, I'm behaving the way you asked me to behave, I'm performing the way that you wanted me to perform, and in all the while that I've been doing that, I can't even get a goat to eat. And this son has come home who wasted everything and who said he didn't want any part of you, and your response to him is, let's have a party. And the burden that I felt is in the father's response to that son. Because my response to that son, as the one who grew up rebellious, is to punch him in the throat. But the father's response is anything but that. In fact, if you look at it, the father's response is almost identical to the response that he gave the younger brother. As that he looks at him and goes, Whoa, 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 whoa. I'm proud of you. I love you. You're mine. This has always been mine. This party is for you, too. Come inside. So, the burden that I felt is that I recognized that Jesus is calling me and has called me in this season. I believe calling all of us to run everything through the mission of how does this help people in outright rebellion find their way back to God and how does this great commandment help us find, help us with people who have grown up and who are saved because their grandmama was saved and their great-grandmama was saved and they've said a blessing before every meal. How do we help them find their way back to God? And so to answer that question this morning, I wanna just unpack three things that the great commandment is that maybe you've talked about maybe you haven't that passage in Matthew 22 that we just read that what it is the first thing that the great commandment is is that it's indicative before it's imperative now these are big kind of English terms and I'm not an English teacher or anything like that I study science but I can try to break it down for you this way um, I know we got some Centerpoint students in here with us and I've talked with them about this before but in my 10-year ministry career one of the other questions that I got asked a great deal of the time is when is it okay for me to start dating people all right my official answer, if you want the official on-the-record answer, is when you're at a spot that you can consider marriage, okay? But students didn't really want to hear that. They didn't want to battle with that. And so I, I tried to boil it down and maybe make it at least step one a little bit simpler. And I told them this, when you can someone on a date in a car that you drive and pay for the date with money that you earned, then you can maybe consider beginning to start dating, Okay if your mom has to take you or if you had to call the other individual on a phone that is not your phone number. Now, I wanna preface, because now everybody's got a phone, but I want you to understand where this advice came from. I didn't get a phone until I could drive. And so in middle school, and I wanna own it completely, in middle school, I was the one that was like, I'm gonna date somebody. And I dated this girl and we were in love, right? And we were gonna get married and her name was Haley. And we just had this whole plan. And this is how our dating relationship looked like my parents had a rule that we could talk on the phone, house phone, which means they could listen because there was more than one of them, all right, until 9 o'clock p.m. And then here's what happened at 9 o'clock p.m. They hung up the phone, right, like right at 9. And I don't know, I have never asked them, were they like watching like New Year's Eve every night, like counting it down, 10, 9, and hang it up or what was going on. And then We transitioned to get cell phones, but then the whole world got upside down, and this is just funny, it doesn't really have a point, because at that time when cell phones were still kind of in the newer stages, you had unlimited talk and text, but only on nights and weekends. Anybody remember that? And so then the rule changed, all right, because you couldn't talk for free until nine. So then all of a sudden, my parents changed the rule, and I could only talk on the phone from nine until ten. And then I had to hang up the phone, but that was just because I didn't want to pay for the phone plan. Right? And so that's what I walked through. And so my dating relationship with Haley looked a light like this. We didn't do anything together. We never went on dates because I was one of five kids. My parents didn't have time to take me and drop me off at the movies and then come back and get me. That wasn't gonna happen. So once, twice, three times a week, we would talk on the phone until nine o'clock when my parents would hang up. Now Haley and I said things like, I love you. I probably even called her baby, you know, because I was in the sixth grade. you got to learn. you got to get your moves going early. you got to figure out how to work the whole system. And so I was doing it. I was trying to figure it out. But from any practical standpoint in which you would, you would judge the merit of a relationship, we were not successful. Right, Because our entire relationship was based on just these couple of things that we did, that we would talk on the phone for a little bit, that we would take these steps together. And my fear is for many of us, especially here in the Bible Belt, our relationship with Jesus looks and functions and processes out exactly the same way. And so these religious leaders have come to Jesus with this question, hey, what does it look like to follow you? And they're hoping he's going to give them, hey, here's the most important rule, and it's going to be one that they've crushed. And so for us, it boils out this way. Hey, Jesus, what does it look like to follow you? Well, two Sundays a month, you're gonna be at church. And if you really wanna be following me, you could maybe even make it three. And then like, once you graduate, like that's, that's elementary of following me. You want to get to middle school? Maybe you could plug into one of those home group things and you could do that. And if you want to get to college and get a master's degree, you could serve in the church or you could actually share your faith with other people who don't know me. And so we're like, hey, that's for like graduate students in this following Jesus thing. And so we begin to try to boil it down the same way these Pharisees are. And is Jesus, what it looks like to follow Jesus is in what I do. And so they ask him this question, which of the law and prophets? And what you need to understand is they're talking about the Old Testament, specifically probably trying to get Jesus to pick one of the 10 commandments, right? And so for many of us, we would go and approach Jesus and we would go, hey, Jesus, what's it look like to follow you? How do I know I'm successful in being a Christian? How do I know that I am a Christ follower? And what they're probably hoping is that he's going to pick in the same way that we would hope something very similar. He's going to pick the 10 commandment that they're the best at following. Okay, yeah, like I know I lied and I know I wanted that thing Larry had. I coveted some of his stuff, but I didn't ever kill anybody. And so I'm good. So if you just say that not killing anyone, that's the most important one, then I'm good to go. But Jesus answers radically, and I love the last statement as he says that on this answer, on the idea of love God, love people, hinges all of the law and prophets. So all of the Ten Commandments are not grounded in the Ten Commandments, but in who Jesus is. And the beauty of this plays out in tons of ways of Scripture. I wish you could study the Old Testament to see this because here's what happens if you read to the end of the story of the Ten Commandments. Moses comes down from Mount Sinai. He's got the Ten Commandments. He's going to break them. If you don't know why they're broken, it's because when he gets down from the mountain, he hasn't even been gone that long, he gets down there and all of Israel is worshiping false gods. Moses breaks the Ten Commandments and then do you know what happens? What happens? This is the, They didn't teach you this part in Sunday school. 3,000 Israeli men are executed in a response to worshiping false gods. But then here's the beauty of what Jesus is calling us to. You go to the New Testament, Jesus lives a perfect life, gives an atoning death, dies in our place, rises again, gives us the great commission that we'll get to here in just a minute and ascends back to heaven. The disciples are waiting, Pentecost happens, Jesus sends the Holy Spirit, and instead of 3,000 people dying, Peter stands up and preaches a message and 3,000 people are saved. You see, the purpose of the Old Testament law and what Jesus is reminding us of here is that our hope isn't in our ability. Our hope isn't in our performance. Our hope isn't in our effort. Our hope is in Christ alone and in the faith in him that saves. That's all that we have. So the great commandment to love God and love people is the litmus test by which we judge how we're doing following Jesus. And the beautiful thing about this is the second point is that as this is an indicative, that this is the judge by which we stand up and go, hey, how am I doing? How am I walking with you? How can I take next step in following you? The next piece that I want us to understand about the great commandment is that it's a journey, it's never a journey we complete. That the answer to this question is, I'm never done. And that's unbelievably good news because it paints the picture for us of a Jesus who says, even when you blow it, your response is, you can come back, that you can be the prodigal son and you can come home. Or for those of us who grew up in the Bible Belt, that you can live your entire life as the older brother out in the barn, miserably trying to follow Jesus with no idea what it means, really just reforming your behavior. And Jesus's response to that is at any moment, you can come in and I'll tell you the parties for you too. And you can come inside. So this indicative of how we're doing following Jesus is never a journey we complete. And I want to give you some more good news as we talk about this. Sometimes this idea of how am I doing loving Jesus, how's my heart doing in loving Jesus, we feel like can't ever be real. Sometimes loving Jesus very, very much looks like a desperate cry from the darkest most horrific place that you could have never imagined being. And your love for Jesus in that moment is just, God, I don't know where you are. God, help me. God, I don't hear you. Where are you? Why are you separate from me? God, be near to me. I can't feel you. I can't hear you. I'm alone in this. And people have come to me time and time again and go, I don't feel like I'm a Christian. And I'm gonna go, no, I watched David do that. I watched Peter do that. I watched Paul do that. I watched theologians throughout the church, the, the history of the church. Church, make that claim. I don't know where Jesus is because, in that moment, affection and relationships require honesty and transparency. And Jesus is the, the gauge is never, hey, how well are you faking being good? It's the reason that we want you to be in a home group, and it's the reason that we beg you when you get to the home group to not just walk in and go, hey, everything's going great. How's your heart? How's your affection? How are you doing with this? And we're gonna come back to this because one of the things that a pastor that I look up to and listen to, I listened to a message of his a couple of months ago, and this has been a statement that he made that's really been kind of something I'm trying to run everything, and I wanna emphasize trying because I'm certainly not getting it right, but I've been trying to run everything through is this idea is that my heart is fully alive in Jesus. My heart is, is fully alive in Jesus. And as awesome as that sounds, it's so difficult because our hearts want to be fully alive in ourselves. What can I accomplish? What can I contribute? What can I? And it plays out in two ways. The first is that it plays out in a worldly way. What can I possess or obtain? What can I accrue? How much wealth can I amass? How much status can I hold? Or for my generation, the millennial generation, and then Gen Z after me, it becomes more of a battle of the series we just walked out of. How much influence can I have? How much can I get people to think like me and vote like me? How can I make America great again or how can I build back America better? And we surrender our lives to chasing those things down or we surrender our lives to saving for retirement and fighting a justice and then wonder why it still doesn't seem to answer the questions that we have. Or the opposite side of it is that it plays out like the older brother that we do it religious. Look at what I can do. Look at all of these good Christian standards that I've upheld. Look how good of a person I've become. And the dangerous thing about this is you'll live your entire life religious and reduce the gospel that's supposed to transform into a message that serves for moral betterment and church attendance. Look at how much better I can be or how many more church services that I can do, or worse, we'll spend our entire lives amassing a great deal of biblical knowledge, studying the Bible, unpacking the Bible, knowing all the answers to the Bible, but never being transformed into that knowledge leading to affection. And what results from that is that we become theological scholars that use that wealth of knowledge to become grumpy old men and yell at everybody who's younger than us to get off my lawn and quit playing your newfangled worship music that's a little bit louder than I'd like for it to be. Or, oh my goodness, did you see that that dude had a hat on in the sanctuary today? I'm surprised that God didn't smite him. I'm surprised that we, God doesn't smite me. They give me a microphone. I don't know what's going on. And why, some of these things aren't even bad. Listen, there's nothing bad about being passionate about pursuing holiness. There's nothing bad about being wise with your money. There's nothing bad about wanting to collect, wanting to contribute, wanting to do all of those things. All of these are actions, and the reason they're never going to do anything for you is because Jesus isn't after your actions. He's after your heart. Ezekiel 36, verse 26 says this, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. If you continue, this is a thing that goes throughout scripture. The book of Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah is told that God is going to write the new covenant where? Not on tablets that come down from Mount Sinai, but on your heart. And so the last thing, and I think the most important, if we're gonna tie the bow on this, that makes it all so unbelievable. The last thing, the great commandment is, is an indicative that becomes an imperative. You see, what happens is if we're doing Christianity right, if we're answering the question the same way that Jesus would, is that our love for Jesus transforms our actions. My actions aren't transformed by a will to be religious. My actions aren't transformed by a will to get people to look at me, to applaud for me, to clap for me, to celebrate all that I can do. My, life, my, my actions are transformed by a heart that says, I desire Jesus and my heart to be fully alive in him and in him alone. Salvation is instant, but this transformation doesn't happen all at once. I want to comfort you that this doesn't, if you struggle and you're sinning and you're wrestling and you're battling, welcome, all of us are. But the longer we walk with Jesus, the more passionate we become about holiness and the more that we desire to walk intimately with him and to battle back against those old desires and to chase the desires of our new heart. And that salvation initiating grace compels our action to really do three things where Jesus wraps up. The first one is that we would love people. But I want to be careful here because we have a tendency to take passages like the great commandment and turn them into bumper stickers. Love God, love people without ever fully understanding what that means. Jesus' command here is not that we would love is not that we would transform, not that we would belittle, or not that we would battle to change the behavior of people. Jesus' command is that we would love people. And again, the water gets muddy. Because the world is going to tell us that loving people accepts. The gospel of the world is tolerance. You let them be whatever it is. Let them live their own truth. Let them live that out. And it's wrong. That's 100% not what the gospel states. But the issue is the swing back pendulum where we get this wrong on the other side is that some of you are already mad because I said live your truth. And you're like, I got something for those live your truth people I'm gonna tell them about. And immediately that's where your mind went. And this plays out in this way, and I listen to this happen, and it breaks my heart so much because people go, "I'm going to tell you where the breakdown in America is. It's because we took God out of school. It's because we took the Pledge of Allegiance out. They're talking about in removing in God We Trust from the money. They're not doing the Pledge of Allegiance. They're not doing the Moment of Silence. They're not doing those kind of things. And I, hey, I'm with you. Those are great things, and I think they should remain. And I'm not anti any of that. But I can tell you as somebody who went to school from first to 12th grade when we still did the Pledge of Allegiance and had the moment of silence, that zero is the number of times that I used that moment of silence to pray. Most of the time we were passing notes or shooting each other with those little paper hornets or something when the teacher wasn't looking, that's what we were using it for. And the reason that that happens is because the issue is not that God has been removed from school, it's that Christians have removed themselves from the second part of loving people and that's making disciples. God didn't go anywhere. We can't take God out of the school, right? We don't, I want, I want everybody to hear me. We don't have the power to take God out of the school. And God, I think, is still big enough to rule and reign in America. If we take in God, we trust off the money, okay? It's fine. Most of us struggle to give it back to him anyway, so we're not even gonna go there. But Jesus' second part in loving people is that we would make disciples. And this is the second passage of scripture that I just wanna unpack for one second because I'm already longer than I'm supposed to be. Jesus says this in the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Discipleship, spiritual growth, taking next steps in obedience to walking with Jesus is the calling ultimately of what it looks like to love people and that plays itself out at Cedar Creek Church in one of two ways. Really, and these play out together simultaneously. The first is that it plays out in community, that the reason that we steer your kids towards small group, that your center point students are in small groups, and that we spend more time up on this stage begging you to get connected in home group is because step one in making disciples is to become a disciple is to get yourself plugged in, is to put checks and balances in your life that are going to help you run your life through the lens of how does Jesus's word inform this situation in my life? And then it plays itself out like this. As you get connected, we believe that everyone in this church can hold hands with somebody in front of them and somebody behind them. And what I mean by that is you're holding hands with this person who's been following Jesus for longer than you have and who probably doesn't have all the answers but might be able to answer questions that you don't know the answer to. And at the same time, you're holding hands with a person back here who may know Jesus, who may not even know Jesus. And you're saying, hey, I don't have all the answers. I want you to hear me say that very clearly that you do not have to know everything in the Old Testament to be a disciple maker. You do have to be willing to go, hey, here's a step that I've taken that transformed my life and be willing to walk with somebody pouring into you as you walk along with somebody who you're pouring into, who you're helping find their way back to God as somebody is helping you find their way back to God. But the last and maybe the most difficult but the most important point that I'll unpack really quickly is the last way that we love people is to surrender. And I know that anytime we say this, everybody sits a little bit tighter on their wallet. All right, like, oh, here he goes. I get the offering basket out. It's the end of the service. He's gonna ask me for my, and listen, I'm not. We don't even, the offering baskets are in the back. You can give on the way out there, but we're not like watching you. We don't have cameras taking pictures or anything like that. But I will tell you that interestingly enough, the first thing that you maybe got hesitant about when I said the word surrender probably is a pretty good indicator of what's going on in your heart. And maybe the thing that you need to wrestle with but what I really want to focus with that's more important, I think, than tithing or giving or, or those kind of things is what does it look like for me to surrender like I watch students do, where you lay your entire life before Jesus, where you surrender it all. I'm stuck, uh, and then returning back to that idea of my heart fully alive in Jesus, I'm stuck, and, and maybe some of you can relate to this. Maybe you're out of this phase. Maybe you're in this phase. My wife and I have had this discussion um, kind of stuck in that phase of parenting. We have a five-month-old and a four-year-old uh, where everything feels very routine. And like 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. is like a mad dash where a thousand things happen and nothing happens all at the same time. And it's very, very easy to fall into this trap that all of this is meaningless and that nothing is really happening. We're just trying to get kids ready and clothes washed and get them to school the next day. And I've, and I've, I've struggled with that. And my wife and I have had conversations about wrestling with that and how do, what do we do with that? And uh, this week, one night, I was playing uh, Uno with my four-year-old daughter, Piper, uh, who unfortunately, pray for her, has got the same competitive drive that I do, right? So she doesn't like to lose. For, uh, younger stages in her life, she would like storm out of the room. So we've had to walk up through that. But one of her friends got her a little fan that holds her Uno cards. And now she actually beats me sometimes without me helping her. I'm not proud of it, but it happens. And so it was Tuesday night or whatever's in the middle of a busy week that I knew I was preaching I had a bunch of other stuff going on in life. And it was we had played three or four games of Uno. I had won all three or four because I'm not going to let her win. We're not, that's not how we roll at my house. You're going to win if you win, and you're going to lose if you lose, okay? I'm competitive. I will beat a four-year-old, and I will feel good about it, okay? All right? You're not going to change that, all right? And so one of the things that I realized is it's, it's funny. We've, we've, condi- we've started to try to coach Piper when she loses because she used to storm out of the room is that now when Piper loses games, she will stand up when she loses to me in UNO. She'll stand up and she'll walk around the table. She'll never make eye contact and she'll go, good game. And then she'll shake hands and then she'll go sit back down and she'll say, I want to play again. And so we're in the sixth or seventh game and I'm kind of caught in that emotion as we're playing UNO. And she, she beats me in this game. But I'm not even really thinking about that. I'm just thinking like, golly, we're, this is the ninth game of UNO we've played. This is all so pointless. And I realized that every time she had lost in those five, six, however many games we had played, she'd come over there and shook my hand and said, good game. And then she finally wins and she stands up and she walks over there and she makes eye contact with me at this point because she's trying to rub it in a little bit. Pray for me, we're still working. She's not perfect. All right, and she sticks her hand out and she says, good game, dad, and she's smiling. And it was in that moment that I believe the Holy Spirit pressed into my heart that idea that I had heard months ago from a pastor that I look up to that said my heart fully alive in Jesus. And what I was convicted of and overjoyed by in that moment is that I realized I wasn't playing, beating, or losing to my daughter in Uno. Is that I was given an opportunity as a gift of God's grace to disciple and pour into a gift that's ultimately his that he's entrusted me with that and that if I will surrender, if I will go, hey, you know what? I don't understand why all of this has to happen between 6 and 8 p.m. and I don't have all of the answers. That There's thousands, hundreds of thousands of opportunities during my workday, during your workday, during regular life, during parenting, during whatever season of life you're in, during retirement, during interactions in relationship, during marriages, during all of this, that things that you've embraced as meaningless and mundane and stuff that you have to get to are actually opportunities 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 for you to see the goodness and grace of Jesus poured out in your life. And it's made manifest in the ability that you're given in those moments to love on the people around you and to be a disciple who makes disciples, who makes disciples because my prayer, and I try to pray this, is that ultimately Piper will be successful in life. I want that, absolutely, but ultimately my prayer is that she will at some point surrender her life to walking with Jesus, and that surrendering her life to walk her with Jesus will set her up for a purposeful life where the forever, as long as God has her here until he comes back, she will see her mission in life is not to go study whatever she studies or become whatever she becomes in a career, but that she will go study whatever she studies and becomes whatever she does because God's given her passions that place her in places that she can be a disciple who makes disciples, who makes disciples, and that she can transform the world. And then her work, her school, her life becomes joy-giving and purposeful. It's not 19 games of Uno at the kitchen table on a Tuesday night. My prayer for you, my prayer for me is that we will become people who see everything, every opportunity and every moment and every situation and every circumstance in our life as a moment for our heart to be fully alive in what Jesus is doing. Will you pray with me? Jesus, this morning, God, I I thank you. God, I thank you that, that this room, that myself, at any given moment has been either of the brothers in the story of the prodigal son. And your response time and time and time again has been come inside the parties for you. My prayer this morning, God, is first for those of us who have never recognized that. Maybe some of us have been in church our entire lives, have grown up knowing all the answers, have behaved the right way, feel like we voted the right way, but there's this void where it feels like all we've ever really done is be religious. We've had the answers right. We've acted the right way. We've been the right people, and we haven't found meaning and purpose. My prayer for that group of people, for myself, and where that's me, is that we'll hear and respond to your invitation to come back. That the parties for us, the joy and purpose, are for us. Jesus, my prayer is also for those of us in this room who feel like we've rebelled too far. We came back in here this morning in a last-ditch effort to throw some Hail Mary that maybe will be good enough or this is step one in becoming good enough. Jesus, that we'll see you running down the road. That your grace is there. Our sin hasn't eliminated your grace, it's made it necessary. And that we'll find hope and joy in you. God, in whichever side of that spectrum we run from, that we'll find your grace, will be transformed by your grace and we will surrender our lives to the calling that you've placed, to be a disciple, to know you, to study you, to walk more intimately with you, to find joy and purpose and meaning in who you are. God, and as we walk that out, we'll see the world around us, not just as a workplace or an opportunity to save enough money and retire and be comfortable, or just in the end chapter of our life as we are retired. But that whatever stage you've placed us in is to fulfill the purpose that you have for our lives. God, and I pray that as we surrender to that purpose, we will experience joy. And I know that we will because every promise you have made comes true. And that you've offered life and life abundantly for those of us who would find our life, who would be fully alive in who you are. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.